You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Well, good morning. How are we, guys? All right. Awake this morning. I love that. Uh, My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Super glad to have you with us. Uh, today is our final week in this series, Upon This Rock, and feel free to go ahead and turn to our series passage, First uh, Peter 5, 6 through 11. Uh, and as you're turning there, I'd love to just uh, begin uh, in prayer this morning, if you'd pray with me. Uh, Father, thank you for the souls that are gathered here in this room. Uh, thank you for your, your work in each and every one of their lives that's uh, evidenced by the fact that they're here. And I pray that you would uh, speak only... Only the way that you can speak to us this morning, I know that I have nothing to sustain the souls of those gathered here, so I pray that you would speak supernaturally through your word and through your Holy Spirit. You would encourage us, convict us, challenge us, um, speak to us in whatever ways we need it this morning through your word. Thank you for Jesus. We love you. Amen. All right, so if you were here back on week one, hopefully you remember me showing you a picture uh, to start this series of a giant rock face in Caesarea Philippi, the location where Jesus looked at Peter and said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And I'd like to start today with a different history lesson and a different picture. So here's the picture I have for you. This is a place called Circus Maximus. Now, I'd like for you to feel smart today, so I will rhetorically ask you what you think those words might mean. And if you initially thought, I don't know, big circus, you'd be right. You must have had your coffee this morning. You must have slept at a Holiday Inn Express last night. You did it. More literally, the words mean largest circus. Except in ancient Rome, the word circus didn't mean exactly what it means today, but simply a very large gathering space for outdoor events, as you can see. Specifically, it was for chariot racing. Uh, Circus Maximus was the largest venue in ancient Rome. Uh, And its heyday hosted 150,000 people, and some estimates being much higher than that. It was a big deal. On the night of July 19th in 64 AD, a fire began in the merchant shops surrounding Circus Maximus. And that fire began to spread. Now, at this point in history, water was piped in from aqueducts, and firefighting resources were limited. So this fire spread across the city quickly. After six days, the fire was mostly controlled, but not before almost two-thirds of Rome had been destroyed. Now, this happened under the watch of Emperor Nero, who was famously unstable. And there's conjecture that he actually had the fire started for political reasons and sang like a maniac as it started. Some things the world will never know. But one thing more widely agreed upon is that Nero very much felt the need to displace the blame for this unthinkable disaster, to find a scapegoat for it. And so he blamed the fire on these socially unpopular Christians. This led to much persecution and bloodshed directed toward Christians. And according to church history, one of the Christians corralled in the ashes of Rome was the apostle Peter the one who penned the words we've been studying the past few months, which were likely written just a few short years before this great fire. 
And legend has it that Peter was executed for his faith in Christ. He was crucified possibly in Nero's circus or gardens, but that he did not feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner his Lord was, so he asked to be crucified upside down. And as we wrap up this series, it's that picture I want you to keep in your mind as we read our passage one last time. Political turmoil, religious persecution, a city on fire, a convenient scapegoat, an aging apostle who had so many ups and downs, who had been radically changed by Jesus and who ultimately holds fast to him all the way to the bitter end. Asking to be crucified upside down, knowing that his life on earth is over. So keep that picture in your mind as we return to the verses we've been soaking in the past two months. Starting in verse six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And what strikes me as I hold that picture in my mind and read these words is the stunning reality that Peter was a man who lived these words. He did not just write them, he acted them out with his life. He became that kind of person through the indwelling power of God's spirit that would say, yes, Lord, if this is the end you have for me, then this is my end. His eyes were fixed on eternity on, with the last days of his life. He preached that final verse, verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word dominion is where we get the word domain, or perhaps more to fit the biblical lingo, dominion is another way to say kingdom. To Jesus be the kingdom forever and ever. Satan's kingdom is crumbling. His domain is shrinking. The kingdom of Rome will one day burn but God's kingdom won't. It is breaking through like light in the darkness and it will last forever and ever. And that's what Peter has his eyes on in the waning years of his life. There's a symmetry in what Peter taught and what he lived out that is radiant. And you have to think that as God looked down at Peter in the rubble of Rome, being turned upside down and feeling all the blood rush to his head, that Psalm 116 was being acted out that says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And stuff like this just gets me. And this is about to take a turn, so, so follow me here. I'm 37, so... I'm at least flirting with the age where many go through some sort of midlife crisis. And for me, at least one of the central questions typical of this season is, what kind of person have I become? What kind of person am I becoming? And what kind of trajectory am I on in life? You see, at 27, it felt like I was becoming a person and building a life. But who knows what the outcome could be? 
There's no telling what I might do or what kind of life I might live. It's a brain space of possibility. We were just starting down the path of having kids, considering ministry and career possibilities, and it felt like a wide open road was in front of us. At 37, with four kids nine and under, and bags under my eyes most days, that road feels less wide open than it used to. The previous four-lane highway to unknown places feels a lot more like the two-lane road that goes to my house, and I can't get there quickly enough because I need a nap. The who are we kidding? Who naps with four kids nine and under? Don't get me wrong, I love my life, and I don't want to change a single thing about it, but there's a shift that happens to most somewhere in this season that I think is summarized by a shift from possibility to finitude. The wide openness of life becomes more narrow, and you start to sense and feel the limited, finite nature of years passing by, and they're passing by more and more quickly. The coming end starts to shape itself around you. The way I've heard others say this is that it's almost like you wake up one day and you realize some version of, I'm no longer building my life. My life is built. And now all that's left is for me to live within the life that I have built. And this shift from possibility to finitude can really mess with people. It can really freak you out. And while our character can change until the day that we die, there's an aspect of this to it as well, where no matter what kind of person you wanted to be in your 20s, you are way more on your way to solidifying the person you actually are in your 30s and 40s and 50s. And somewhat frequently, people make big and sometimes rash decisions in this season of their life when what's going on under the surface is that they are realizing they don't like the life that they have built or they don't love the person they are becoming. And just to be clear, I have no desire or plans to buy a convertible or have an affair, okay? None whatsoever. I mean, a convertible does sound kind of cool, but I think I'd be more of a Jeep guy, to be honest. I think that's more my speed. I've always wanted a motorcycle, even in my 20s, but my wife worked in the ER, so that has been nixed from my list of options. But I won't lie, this still affects me. And for me, when I think about the kind of person I want to be moving toward becoming, I think it gets me there the most. Because what I want to be is the kind of person I see at the end of Peter's life, who is writing these incredible words dripping with Christ-centered wisdom, a person writing instruction from the throngs of persecution and who submits to martyrdom for the joy set before him. I want to be the sort of Christian who leaves a spiritual legacy when I'm gone. Or even after I'm long dead, the teaching and words and example I set in place are still shaping or affecting others in my wake. I want to be the kind of man and pastor who 30 or 40 years from now, you guys still let me preach every once in a while. I want want young leaders 
and churches around me to go home and tell their wives, hey, Brandon called me today. And he asked me how I was doing. And he prayed for me not to be discouraged. And I think he may have known how close I was to giving up. And now I think I want to keep going. That's the kind of man and pastor I want to be. I want to be a man who spends more time with the Lord as I age, not less, who grows in wisdom, but also soft-heartedness. I want to be the kind of man who has such a strong foundation that my faith not only withstands the assaults of life, but helps ground others as well. But I also feel this tension in me because I am not yet the man I want to be. I'm too easily distracted. I'm too easily discouraged when I'm hurt or disappointed. I'm too impatient. I'm not yet the man or pastor or husband or father that I hope to be at my funeral. But one thing that gives me hope is that there was a time when Peter wasn't the man he wanted to be either. And so we're going to look at that story. It's one of my favorite stories from his life because I think it shows the humanity deep within him and within all of us. Back in week three, you may remember, we talked about the story of Peter's fruitless all-night fishing trip, how the resurrected Jesus showed up on the beach and Peter cast himself into the sea and swam to him. And Jesus made breakfast on the beach and had this beautiful moment of restoration after Peter's denial, and Jesus asked him three times if Peter loved him, and he affirmed three times, yes, I love you. And in the very next verse, on that beach, immediately after Peter says for the third time that he loves Jesus, and Jesus says, feed my sheep, Jesus looks at his disciple, at his friend, and he tells him how he's going to die. Pick up in John 21, verse 18 with me. These are Jesus' words. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Does that sound like crucifixion or what? Verse 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's referencing the apostle John, who was so convinced of Jesus' love for him. That's how he refers to himself. Verse 21, when Peter saw him, him being John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Translation, Jesus, you just told me that I'm going to die for you? What about John? Is he going to die for you too? Is he going to have the same end that I have? How is this fair? He's channeling all of our, this not fair energy in this moment. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Here's what I love about this question that Jesus asks him. The question reveals who Jesus is, because this is a question that may rub us the wrong way at first. But when you start with who Jesus is, you realize how appropriate the question actually is. 
This is a question that the risen Lord of the universe, who has just died and rose again to defeat sin and death and hell, is perfectly free to ask. If it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus took on human flesh, died a brutally painful death, and he rose from the grave in a glorified, resurrected body so that the death Peter would experience would not be a final death, but a blip on the radar of eternity. So if John gets a preferable path, what is that to you, Peter? You follow me. It's a bit like if we all get a free trip to Tahiti, but some of us get direct flights and others get layovers and delays. And some of us have a kid who screams the entire flight, but we all get this same amount of time in Tahiti. It puts your, your whatabouts in perspective when you're looking at the glorified, risen body of Jesus, knowing that one day yours will be just like that, never to die again, and will roam and reign on a glorified heaven and earth that's been reconnected for good. And when you think about it like that, it puts the comparison and jealousy to rest, to know that all of us, no matter where life will take us, all of us who put our faith in Christ will one day rise again and resurrected bodies free from sin and death with Jesus forever and ever. We all We'll get that. So even if this person in your church family has not suffered what you're suffering, if they have not lost what you've lost, Jesus says, come, follow me. That person in your group who has not experienced addiction like you have, they can't even begin to wrap their minds around how deep the struggle has been for you. That's not your concern. Jesus says, you follow me. That friend of yours who's a Christian and who at least according to Instagram, their life seems perfect. And sometimes that makes you jealous. What business of that is yours? Jesus might say, you come follow me. It's weirdly encouraging that Jesus needed to say this to Peter of all people and that Peter needed to hear it too. This picture of a younger, wavering, newly reinstated disciple hearing some really hard news about his future, responding in jealousy, is just so easy to identify with because that's me. That's me too. Lord, what about him? Is he going to get the same thing that I get? Is he going to get a better life? And then at the end of his life, a few short years after penning this letter, Roman soldiers came for him, carrying out a government conspiracy and placed their hands on him and he was ready to die. And what's left is what came in the middle of those two points. What's left is Peter's response when Jesus looked at him and said, follow me. Because he did. He followed him. Peter did exactly what he told us to do in the passage we've studied. He humbled himself under the Lord. He listened and obeyed. Through his humbling, he was exalted as he waited for the promised Holy Spirit to come and was filled at Pentecost. All of a sudden, the coward who denied Jesus is bravely preaching the gospel, commanding people to repent, and thousands of them do. 
He faced the difficulties of life and ministry, and he cast his anxieties on the one who cared for him. He stayed on guard against the enemy seeking to devour him. He stood firm to resist that corrupting influence. And even as he suffered and died for his faith, a brutally difficult path to think about, even still, he did not consider his suffering all that special. Other friends and disciples, and most importantly, his Lord had already walked that path before him. Even then, he knew his suffering would only last a little while because this life only lasts a little while. He knew from experience that Jesus would restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish him. So he was confident to trust him to do that even after death. Week after week and day after day, he built his life upon a rock that he could stand on no matter what may come. So as we end the series today, I want to turn our attention to this turning point that Peter has in John 21, this command Jesus gives, you come follow me. Because in some way, all of our lives are at this first point. We, like Peter, are not yet at the end of our lives, the end of our stories. And likely in some ways, we're not exactly the people we would like to be spiritually when all is said and done where in our most honest and most hopeful state, we might say some version of, yeah, I'd really like A, B, and C to be true about me. I'd like to see meaningful spiritual growth happen in my life. You have your own version of the kind of spiritual legacy that you would like to leave behind. But the thing is, in order to get there, you have to do what Jesus said. You have to follow him to get where you want to go. That's the only way. It won't just happen. You won't drift there. Like consider an alternate story where Peter responds differently, where he says, no way, if John gets to not die and I get crucified, I'm out. No, thank you. And Peter ends up a spiritually cold, distant, non-contributor to the faith. He has no beautiful martyrdom that echoes throughout history because we don't even know how he died. In order to get the end result, you have to follow Jesus no matter how difficult, no matter how hard, no matter what it costs you. And so maybe for some of us this morning, the application is just to soberly realize the current trajectory that you are on. It's possible to still be here, still be somewhat regularly around church gatherings and life group, and still be off the trajectory of following him, where there are excuses that just keep popping up in your mind. It's harder than it used to be. Following Jesus is harder now that I have kids, now that I have so many kids, now that my kids are grown and gone. My group is difficult sometimes, and so I just bow out instead of helping it get better. I don't connect with others that easily. I know Jesus says to do blank, but I'm just not there right now. I know what he says about confessing sin, but I'm just not on board with that right now. My heart is cold. I know what he says about finances, but I want to prioritize other things. I know I need to be spending time in scripture and prayer, but at the end of the day, I just don't want to. So maybe for some of us, the takeaway from today needs to be going to your life group this week and saying, 
I'm still here right now, but I don't know that I'm on the path to being here two years from now. And I don't know that I'm on the path to be following Jesus 10 years from now, maybe. And I'm certainly not on the path to being this beautiful person of spiritual growth up until the day I die. And I need to tell you guys that. And I need to confess that. And I want that to change. If needed, maybe some version of that needs to be said to someone else in your group that this week. Like, hey, have you considered that you might not be on the path you want to be on? For others of you, maybe there's some kind of midlife stuff going on. Some wrestling where you're transitioning from a life full of possibility to a life growing in finitude by the year. And maybe there's some legitimately hard things about that that you need to grieve and lament and process with Jesus and with your community. And also maybe on the flip side of that, Jesus may come to us in the kindest, warmest way and do something similar that he did with Peter, where he says with love so great that it went through death itself, hey, if so-and-so gets more of the life that you wanted, will you still trust me? Will you still follow me? Even if this life on earth doesn't turn out to be all that you hoped, are you still in? Will you still follow me? In Matthew 19, Peter wrestles with exactly this topic. Right after Jesus teaches on the rich, Peter asks a very honest question. And Jesus' answer is one of the most stunning promises that I'm not sure we're capable of fully understanding. Look at this with me. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. If you are wrestling with a similar issue, wrapping your mind and heart around some lack that you feel in your life, what you need is not a convertible. What you need is not an extramarital relationship or even a new hobby. What you need is a new hope to set your heart and your eyes on, a new vision to set your heart on. And Jesus asked some difficult things of us to be sure, just like he did with Peter, but he makes promises so wild it makes all the cost seem small. This impossibly bright future that never ends is what is on Christ's mind for us when he says to us, like he said to Peter, you come, follow me. Following him is the only way to get to the desired end state. So as we wrap up this morning, I, I don't know what's coming down the road for, for you and I in our lives. I often joke with Christy that I'm going to die in a house fire in my 40s. That's not a real thing. It's just that This Is Us is our favorite show of all time. <laughs> and Jack, the dad in the show, 
dies like that, spoiler alert, <laughs> and, and he's like a legend in his family. So I've always said that if I can be a legend in my family, forever immortalized, then I'll gladly go out in my 40s trying to save the family pet, you know what I mean? I'll take that. But more seriously, I don't know what's coming for any of us. Statistics would say that there are great challenges and hardships ahead for every single one of us. There's already so much set against our mental and spiritual health as we've talked about through this series. We have a great enemy who seeks to devour us. There are storms ahead to be sure. But my prayer is that through all of that, we will become the kind of people who withstand whatever may come whose faith is so rooted and strong that no future wind will threaten it, that we become a people who will endure till the end. And I read something recently about the, the path of spiritual growth over a Christian's lifetime, and it was the coolest idea to me. It said that once someone goes through whatever that transition is from, from possibility to finitude, the, the shrinking time and flexibility of life opens up all sorts of new avenues for spiritual growth in the waning seasons of our lives. It's the idea that as your years in front of you shorten, a person who is decaying spiritually will grow bitter and numb because what else can you do? But someone whose heart is fixed on Christ sees their spiritual growth spike like a compound interest chart that just keeps going up at the end, almost straight up because the time span pressurizes the growth exponentially as you more fully become the kind of person that you've already been on the path to becoming all along, as you follow Jesus day in and day out. And that has certainly played out in some of the older saints I've seen walking with Jesus before they met him. And Lord willing, it will be a long time before I have to do any of your funerals. But I pray that if and when I do, your love for Jesus and your practice of following him looks like a compound interest chart at the end. It's just going straight up. And when one of you does my funeral one day, I hope the exact same thing, that there's a beautiful spiritual legacy trailing behind me, a stable and compelling faith that provides shade to others. I said earlier that I don't know what's coming for you and I, but I need to redact that at least partially. Because if you pull the timeline out long enough, I actually do know what's ahead for us who are in Christ. 200,000 years from now, give or take, don't hold me to the specifics, okay? You and I who are in Christ will be looking at our healed, fixed, renewed, improved, glorified bodies our hearts that don't tire out, our backs that don't hurt, our feet that don't tire of exploring, our knees that don't hurt anymore. We will roam over the valleys and hills of the new heaven and the new earth. We will feast in a place where famine has been eradicated, love in a place where death has been done away with for good, made whole without the cracks of sin inside us and in our relationships. We will have sound minds and bodies, freed from the crooked fingers of illness and instability. 
At the center of this paradise will be God the Father, God the Son, and his resurrected body, God the Holy Spirit. And we will sing our remade hearts out with gratitude for the fact that we've been purchased, redeemed, brought to this place. We had no power of our own to make it happen. We may remember the difficulties we faced on earth. I'm not sure. I don't know about that part. We may remember the hardships, the costs that we endured for following Jesus, the mental health struggles. We may remember what kind of deaths we died, or glory may replace grief. I don't know. What I do know is that the power and might of Christ will be on display in the words of Peter forever and ever. And so will his love and faithfulness. And our joy will be complete and unconquerable because the great secret is Jesus doesn't really do finitude after all, amen? amen? With Christ, the finitude found at the end of a life turns not only into possibility, but the reality of eternity. We began the series by having us all stand and read this passage from Peter aloud. So if you would, I'd like to ask you to stand again now, and we'll do the same. May these words through the power of the Holy Spirit point us to the rock that we stand on and, and shape us into people that not only endure, but grow until the very end. Please read with me. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.